The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. Sensitive listeners should plug their ears with their fingers. In three, two, one. Yes. <laughs> Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day again, good world. What you watching? Be more specific. Yeah, that's right. You've heard part one of our Time Twisters season finale, and for reasons we can't explain, you're back for more punishment. Well, let us oblige you. I'm subgenre host Josh Dassel, and I'm back with the same roundtable of filmic miscreants as before. That means Charlotte Moore Lambert, Fabian Marquez, Nick Heim, and Alan Mall. We're picking up this episode somewhere in the middle of our barbs and jabs about director Terry Gilliam's 1995 infectious disease adventure flick led by the talents of Bruce Willis, Brad Pitt, and Madeline Stowe. Not nine, not 10, not even 11 will do here. No, 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 because this is 12 Monkeys. This is where the second unraveling happens yeah. for her, or the big unraveling, at least yeah. to me. I mean, and this one, to be fair, it. is hard to ignore. When you see the photo with him yes. in the 1917 yeah. thing, like, of course, you're going to then buy his story. Right. The lieutenant calls, says, look, we did some ballistics on that big-ass bullet you found in his leg, and it turns out, A, it's a super old bullet, and B, like, not just old, but, like, old, old, and it was fired sometime before whatever, 1920. You can't tell that from ballistics. <laughs> you can That's tell. like carbon dating. That's not... Well, you can know the design of the bullet was. That yeah, you could, but it says it was stamp. fired before a certain time. That would require uh, a carbon well, dating. Yeah, the stamp yeah. on the bullet. There, that's what you have to assume then. You could say when it was made. Yeah. Yes. Well, they had a notarized certificate that said... <laughs> it's like anyway. when you get something from the Franklin Mint. <laughs> <laughs> this sparks something in her, which, you know, we'd kind of gotten a hint of earlier that aren't you familiar to me? I, where do I know you from? She runs to her own book and opens it and finds that picture of Jose that she's been showing in all these lectures all the time and talking about the guy that in World War One was saying things. That's not the whole photo. She goes looking for the original photo, finds it tacked to her serial killer wall where she has all of her pictures and notes and everything. Right. Right. And in the picture is James Cole reaching out for mm -hmm. Jose. Naked. And that's the moment where She's everything like, snaps. Ah! Yeah, yeah. And that's when she whispered, cheeks out for death. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, a man who lives by that creed. <laughs> His cheeks are out right there. Someone should scrub those. Grab the push broom. Yeah. And then we cut to the lab. Yeah, her response to that is to call. Yeah, to call the virologist and like find out what the hell is going on. Yeah, Christopher Plummer He's talking to her on the horn, phone. Like hard accent again. <laughs> Denying Christopher yeah. Plummer not well used in this movie. No. He's only in like two scenes no. and he's so good and yeah. they just don't use him much. Yeah. He's denying everything. No, no, no scary viruses here. And even if I had scary viruses, nobody has access to them. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. Hung up the phone. He's yeah. got terrible laboratory etiquette. At one point, he just like throws his coat down on yeah. a centrifuge or something. Yes. Like no one's wearing PCR. Like, come on. And this oh. is another question, though, is here. did her calling give the guy the idea to take the virus out of the lab? We don't know. You know, I think that's supposed to be one of the questions it leaves you with. And the interaction that he has 
with Dr. Peters is weird. Yes. yes. It, it's the, she called and was asking about something. It feels very conspiratorial between both of them. Mm-hmm. But at the end of it, Dr. Goins is like, well, we should up our security procedures to make sure nothing bad happens. Yes. And I don't know that I've ever quite worked out yeah, whether- Does he know anything about- Does he yeah. know anything? And is is the, we should up our security protocol, like in case anyone's listening, is that like code for don't do that, right. grab it and run? Yeah. Or not. Because I agree. It sounds like at the beginning he's going to say, oh, someone's on to us. And instead he doesn't. And it seems confusing. Is my memory failing me here? Does Peters have the red wig in this scene? I don't think he does. I think he does. But it's all does back. Does he? Yeah. I think maybe it's all. Because at that point, I didn't make the connection between him and the guy appearing at her signing earlier. Uh-huh. I didn't realize it was the same character. I think he has like the, like like, the, oh, little, guy. the little Chernobyl worker hat, like the little maybe white, you know, white castle yeah. looking thing yeah. that you wear yeah. in a science lab. Okay. The beard net. And so, to round out this scene, there is the mention from Dr. Peters to Dr. Goins in that conversation about has this woman succumbed to her own Cassandra complex? Right. Mm-hmm. Which was another one of those lines that made me think they both know that there is a thing that cannot be changed that she has the information for but can't do anything about. Right. Which I think is what appealed to me about this movie when I saw it as a teenager. That idea of like... They know the future, but they're impotent to change it. And that felt new and interesting and, you know, edgy and cool. And it's been done better since then. So it seems less vital of a story to tell Mm -hmm. than it did when Mm -hmm. I was 15 years old or whatever. Let's take one more bite at the apple and let's (laughs) re-geek. Oh, I didn't like that. (laughs) That was much more upsetting. That was very sexual. It's not any worse than last locks. No, No, it is worse. (laughs) It is worse because the one that you just played, there's like weird heavy breathing or something. (laughs) I have a personal affinity for the last locks one. (laughs) Ah, yes. We had talked about what 1995 was like in the geek out and and kind of where we were and when we remember all this stuff happening. In the re-geek... I want to go back to 1995, but this time around, I want to talk about movies from that year. All right. So what I did is I went through the list of movies from that year, and I separated them into three categories that I think these movies could fall into. the homework? Oh, I always do the homework. (laughs) That's why no one likes me. What are your three categories? Well, there's actually four categories, because the fourth category is dumb garbage, but I'm not (laughs) counting those ones. So the ones that I think are worth talking about are ones that are actually good. Then there are the ones that are so incredibly 90s that they kind of encapsulate encapsulate the power of 1995 and then there's stuff you remember fondly but probably is not good at all (laughs) your organizational system is better than mine so i'm gonna go with yours (laughs) yeah some ones that popped out to me as being actually good from 95 babe yes what a great i have never seen babe oh go to hell (gasps) what never once here's the reason i haven't seen babe it's about an animal, and it makes you cry. And I can't watch either of those movies. You can, because it has a happy ending. Nothing bad happens. Yeah, it's a good ending. Okay. Well, obviously, because there's a babe, too. Yeah, but right. in that one, they all die. Oh, great. <laughs> is there a virus? Is that yeah. how it? Okay. Yeah, they all have yes, to live the underground. Yes, virus is friendship. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, there's push a lot brooms. of push brooms. Yeah. Uh, Casino is a yes. good movie, although Ooh. another one, hard to rewatch, but well-made. So, so good. It's so you can good. watch it in segments. Just watch the opening. Just watch the whole How the Casino Floor Operates section, and you don't need to watch the rest of the movie, really. It's true. I mean, by the time everyone's getting their heads bashed in with the bats, you're like, this, this is a lot. Speaking of Bruce Willis, the third Die Hard movie is very good. Die Hard with a Vengeance oh, with yes. Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, that might be my favorite other than the original one. Yeah. It's so good. And uh, Toy Story. 
Mm-hmm. Just a oh, great yeah, movie. What about uh, uh, Stuart Saves His Family? Alfred oh, yeah, Stuart classic. Saves His Family. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I rented that from Leroy Video one time, and uh, I don't think I've ever seen my dad so annoyed at a film as that Stuart <laughs> Saves His Family. I was like, they'll just I make anything into I, a movie now, huh? I remember being violently angry just by the trailer. <laughs> it was so bad. A couple of ones, too, I'll add to your list that are worth talking about, I'm sure, maybe on yours. Seven. Of course, we mentioned that before. I don't like Seven. Stop. What? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's too miserable of a movie. That's why it's great. It's not. Okay. When you're a miserable bastard like I am. It is well made. Are you a miserable bastard or do cute little animals make you cry? Which Yes. Okay. Those are his only two modes. <laughs> Those are the two genders. I think Heat is one of the yes. best movies of the night. Oh, Agreed. Yeah, sure. Heat. Crimson Tide. Crimson Tide. Hey, we did that one. Apollo so 13 Apollo is a 13. solid movie. 95, I didn't realize until I went back looking at all the movies that came out. This may be the best year for movies of, a, of a decade. I, I think 99 sure. is better. 99 is better. I'll have to look at 99, but of, of the movies strong. that I would watch repeatedly... A lot of them came out in 95. Okay, now, a lot going. of those would fall under my, I remember these fondly, but I, you can't really just say Maybe they're so. objectively good, Maybe like so. Billy Madison. No. I loved. Oh, yeah. It's not good, but man, I loved it so much. Tommy Boy, same thing. Yeah. Jumanji, same thing. I didn't love Jumanji. The Brady Bunch movie, I watched <laughs> 100,000 on. times. That. <laughs> That's an awesome movie. <laughs> Scarlet Letter, I remember fondly because that was oh, one that God. I claimed we, my girlfriend and I were going to go see, and we just skipped it to do other things instead oh, yeah. and so like that one oh, wow. the fond memory did you, saw that one did you earn a scarlet letter <laughs> like, <laughs> depends on who you ask you know um and then there's the ones that are just so 90s like batman forever yes. no like, that one is just the 90s encapsulated i don't have the money to pay for that stop singing <laughs> Ring a ling a ling. Uh, oh, uh, no. This is Seal. <laughs> uh, what, what about um, seminal, very different. seminal movie Friday? Friday, uh, yeah. another Which very nineties movie. I just saw for the first time. Amazing a film. Couple of months Love ago. it. Yeah. Um, Bye, Bad Boys is as nineties as it gets. Right. Same with Desperado. I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. Desperado, oh. as we mentioned, Waterworld came out that year. Yep. Mall Rats. Showgirls. Yes. Oh, was also in ninety five. Desperado was ninety five. Ninety five. Yeah. Yep. El Mariachi was a oh, couple yeah. few years before that. One I'm, of the three best serial killer movies came out in 95. Copycat. Do you remember Copycat? Never seen it. Sigourney Weaver and Holly Hunter and mm. uh, Harry Connick Jr. Okay. Oh, no, never even heard of it. Oh, my no. God. Please, please go watch Copycat. I Fabian, have you seen this right one? There. No, I don't remember seeing that. Really? Harry Connick. Iconic Connick. Oh, man. You got to see Harry Connick in a great role. Get Shorty, I think, was also 95. Yes. Oh, Very 90s movie. movie. Oh, The Net. Yeah. The most the 90s Net. movie. The Net. Yeah. And uh, Mall Rats, I said. The Power Rangers movie is as 90s as it gets. Mm-hmm. And Jerky Boys, the movie. Jerky <laughs> The Boys. movie that should never have been made. Hey, Jerky. Oh, good for them. <laughs> that is as 90s as it gets right there. I'll add some more indie ones mm. into the also feels very 90s category. So things like Four Rooms. Oh, yeah. Oh, was man. that 95? That was 95. Oh, wow. Yeah, we're talking about Rodriguez. Rodriguez and Tarantino both doing, you know, two of the four stories in yep. Four Rooms. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Dollhouse came out in 95. Tu Wong Fu came out in 95. Oh, my God. That's a very 90s, but very fun movie. Delightful. Empire Records was 95. I haven't seen that one. Before wow. Sunrise. That's one that's on my to-watch list, but I've not seen Oh, man, of both of those trilogy. are great. Yeah, no. 
the Doom Generation. I don't know if anybody remembers oh, Doom yeah. Generation. Greg Araki? I think so. Tank Girl, if you're oh, a Lori Petty I, fan. I have not seen it, Lord but Petty. I do know That's it. That's a weird movie. And a couple of foreign entries on it as well. City of Lost Children. So uh, Juno, oh, Juno yeah. and Caro, who did Delicatessen, City of Lost Children, came out in 95, and so did Zhang Yimou's Shanghai Triad. Mm. Holy cow. Brave and Wallace Heart. and Gromit. Wallace and Gromit's a close shave came out in 95, too. Mm-hmm. One of my oh, favorites, man. That's a, that's animation Wallace I like. Oh, stop it. Oh, I get it. Wow, you're so British. All <laughs> Let's right. get Charlotte a chicken run-themed gift for Christmas. <laughs> Can we? Can oh, we please? William Friedkin's Jade came out with David Caruso. David that was Caruso. the movie that he quit oh, NYPD right. Blue to go. He like tanked his own career to go star in this Friedkin movie. Speaking of people was, who showed their ass and things. Yeah. Yeah. Never seen or heard from again. And Braveheart. Braveheart, 95. Braveheart 95? was 95. Yeah. Braveheart so, and Goldeneye was also 95. Oh, if you're it was right. not on the list of films of 95 for some reason. Yeah. I looked for Braveheart because I, I could have sworn it was 95. Because I remember it being on the feature with Congo at the Batavia Theater. Congo was so bad. And we all we were there to see Congo. And we were like, nah, let's go see Braveheart instead. But we were not old enough to get into it because it was rated R. But we got in and just because the guy didn't give a shit. And we got in and it was made me like, oh, I want to do this. I want to make movies. I love yep. this. And so it was like a big day for me. And I'd almost saw Congo instead. And then I, Mel Gibson's been great ever since. <laughs> no problems no there. Misses. I have nothing else that we no. should talk about for him. No notes. Uh, the original Ghost in the Shell came out that year. Uh-huh. Which yep. oh, if wow. you guys haven't seen that, that's a gorgeous movie. But then just speaking of plague movies, Outbreak. Outbreak. Came oh, out in yeah. 95. Were you which, the one who watched that during pandemic I watched Outbreak and I watched Soderbergh's Contagion. Why? Both during. I couldn't do it. Because I I guess I like to wallow in the filth (laughs) in the moment of things. I just enjoy it. If you were in high school in the late 90s you had to watch like anytime that it was a movie day where the teacher was just like shut up and put on a movie like it was always outbreak really i've seen that movie <laughs> I've never so seen many it. times speaking of people that might be uh, also considered not problematic at all uh, woody allen's a mighty aphrodite came oh, out that yeah, year that guy's the best clueless <laughs> was out that year heckerling's clueless and uh, sense and sensibility also to die for uh first time i think most people became aware of joaquin phoenix with oh. nicole kidman Nicole Kidman in that, yeah. Is that the one where she gets, Sam, gets him to written, kill her husband? Yeah. Yeah. Who's played by Matt Dillon. And That's it was right. written by uh, Buck Henry, the great Buck Henry. Yes, who wrote Harold and Maude, right? Oh, right. Didn't he write also um, The Graduate? Oh, I'm sorry. That's what I meant. Yeah, he wrote, wrote okay, The Graduate. That makes more sense. Yep. Oh, Species came out that year, too. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Natasha Hestridge. Henstridge. Henstridge. So, so here's my Usual point. Suspects. 1995 yeah. was a flipping good year for That's movies. a lot of man. movies yeah, that I remember. But also, is it just because we were at the age where movies were more important to our day-to-day life. Like, I think we were at the age where me. movies were better. They right. might have been better. I don't know. But or I was it just that pop culture was more centered? That there was like now everything's so splintered. I don't think yeah. you can find a single person who listened to the same song in the last ten years. It's fractured a lot with streaming, and no one listens to the radio, and there aren't like three TV channels. It's just harder to find consensus on things. Well, and you got the movies you got. Like you walked into Blockbuster. Yep. And there's the display up front. Here's what's out right now. Rent them. Get an art house film or watch Outbreak or get the f*** out of my store. Like, and I that's... think Josh and I talked about this last time we did Groundhog Day, how one of the things that used to be a hallmark was every family had just some random VHS tapes that they would watch mm-hmm. 10 million times yes. of some random movie you taped off TV. Yeah. So you're like, oh, I've seen Clue 
four hundred <laughs> times, <laughs> and you and you knew where all the hits and the dropouts on the yep. tape yep. were, and where the static was going to come. Edit, edited for TV language bits, mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. But then inevitably, your mom would record over it, yeah, with, anyway, and you'd just be so pissed. And yeah. it's like that film was barely watchable at this right. point. The tape doesn't even work. No, no, it was fine. I had a system. I needed to see Top Gun thirty six more times. <laughs> How am I going to see it now? Now all I have is this episode of Days of Our Lives. <laughs> I had Clueless queued up to Alicia Silverstone's side boob. <laughs> oh, God. All right. And with that, we're taking a break. We'll come back and talk Bye. more about this in a minute. Bye. Hey, subgenre listeners, this is Josh Dassel, host of the show you're listening to and founder of Kabunki, the company behind it all. If you listen to many podcasts, I do, then you know at this point or somewhere around here, you expect to hear a commercial or two, you know, ads. This is the time when we hear companies who support a podcast speak directly to their audience. So why aren't you hearing one now? Because this space is still available. Have a business, organization, product, or cause you need to promote? Ask Kabunki how to get your ads in front of our global audience of listeners today. The audience knows about movies. They know about pop culture. And soon, they could know about you, too. Support this podcast and advertise on Subgenre or other popular shows brought to you by Kabunki. Ask us more on the show website, subgenrepodcast.com, or at kabunki.com. Kabunki, leave your mark. It is subgenre, and we are back in studio talking about 12 Monkeys from 1995. I am here with Nick Heim. I am here with Charlotte Moore Lambert. I am here with Fabian Marquez on the Zooms. It's me. We are not here with Alan Maul, who has decided that he has had enough of this. I locked him in the trunk of my car. (laughs) Then he disappeared back to the future. (laughs) He was was here one moment and then gone. Gone the next. All he left behind was a push broom covered in soap. K-Y. <laughs> I don't know why. Stupid. That was stupid. <laughs> don't cut that part. That's what I do. <laughs> no, I'm leaving it. It's mine and I'm leaving it. This is my podcast and I want <laughs> I people right. to hear me fail. <laughs> We're going to try to finish this movie out so that all of us can go home and get rest and do other things with real life. When we left off before the break, we God, were back to this. I know, <laughs> but this is it. This is the home stretch. Right. Back in go. the junk pile. I know we're trying to push our way through this to the end, but I am going to give Fabian a chance to talk about something that he had mentioned over the break. Cole waking up in the future with all the people around him singing and the painting above him. Yeah, it's just two things to call out. And I wonder if it ties into this you know, theory about the real purpose of Cole being sent to the past. But they've got the painting, right? And the painting sort of tropical, which conjures, you know, Florida Keys, maybe. As they're singing Blueberry Hill, I mean, those are mashed in your face and in your ear holes these two things and they were referenced prior to that. So I hadn't really given much credence to this theory that you raised, Josh, and I hadn't heard of it prior to recording this. But now thinking about it, I'm like, okay, that just seems too intentional, too highlighted to not be sort of analyzed. 
It does feel a little clockwork orangey, like they're trying to change his brain or his mindset. But it's also hard to tell when you're so deliberately affected the way Gilliam likes to be, like how much of it is just weird for weirdness's sake Mm -hmm. and how much is supposed to be part of the plot, you know? And I think we're looking at this too as, is it one or is it the other? And I think it's all of them at the same time. Mm, I think it's the fact that Gilliam is just weird to start with and B, that he is deliberately trying to be confusing and C, that the lens that we're asked to look through all of this through is the lens of a person with a broken mind and or a drugged up mind. So they're probably all true to some degree and they're probably all bullshit to some degree. Also, but don't you think that the celebration and the pardon is a little like premature? in this scene like it it seems like he didn't really fulfill much of a mission no all he did was connect the 12 monkeys army to the virus which they already did he didn't need to the the clipping was on the wall before he left the first time to go back in time that there was a virologist that was saying all this stuff he didn't need to do that he didn't need to do any of this I mean the second time he makes the connection when he finds out that it wasn't them that's worth telling right like but the first one just confirming what they already know doesn't seem to give them what they're looking for well they've given him this second chance to go back in time and he has, you know, thought, oh, maybe I'm crazy and all these people are in my mind. But he does want to go back. And he's had this conversation with Raspy Voice about, you know what you want. You want the lady and you want to be back and smell the fresh air and see the blue skies. So he's basically putting himself in the position to go back and trying to prove to them that he's worthy to go back. And so they're quizzing him on, okay, tell us what you need to know to go back and do this successfully. And so he's able to rattle off the order in which the virus was spread. And so his list, you know, San Francisco, then New Orleans, Rio de Janeiro, Rome, Kinshasa, Karachi, Bangkok, Peking. And he's already said, I've got this good mind for remembering things. So he's able to do that. He knows when it was most likely released on December 13th of 1996, because it showed up a couple of days after Christmas in Philadelphia. He knows all of these things. And so therefore, we as an audience now know all of these things. The one additional bit of information in here is there is another clipping that's either been added or that he can see now on the wall with a spray painted message that says, is there a virus? Is this the source? Five billion die. And we don't know where and we don't know who did this, but that is now additional information of something to recognize later. We go back to 1996. We're back at that FAA building that we remember before. And outside is Catherine, who has in the previous time we've seen her now been fully convinced that our guy is from the past because he had a bullet from the past in his leg and he was able to tell about the kid hiding in the well and all those other things sort of proves to her that maybe he is telling the truth. And so she's going back to the FAA. It would not prove to me. He's got a story. He knew about the kid. The picture would be hard to, but I mean, at this point, you could just Photoshop. Well, no, 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 but like as a psychiatrist, like the burden of proof for someone saying that they're being a time traveler is so much higher than like, and this man in a photo looks like you. Is it because I want him to look like you? Is it because I need him to look like you? Like, that's what I've... She's been telling him this whole time you've been inserting things from your life into your fantasy. As a psychiatrist, I would start asking myself if I were now doing that because I hated my coworkers and I needed something more interesting. Which I think is something that is missing in this film is her taking her same logic and applying it to herself outwardly so that we as an audience can know she's doing that and therefore confusing us as an audience even further and getting us... I, I would like to have seen that and we didn't see that. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's also part of what gets lost in the desire to turn this into more of an action movie than a like psychological thriller. Right. Like I think you could do a more interesting idea of like what's real, what's not, if you weren't also trying to deal with it being you know a sci-fi adventure movie. Yep. This was a very common thing in this genre and many genres in the mid '90s. It still happens in movies, but it's like they have an attractive woman, and because she's an attractive woman, she has to be the love interest in some way. Right, and we she gotta has get to her there. Get on board 
forward with the guy and his plan no matter what. So we're not going to stop and have her ask those questions. Right. She believes him now. Time for the blonde wig. There's the Cassandra syndrome that they mentioned too, but there's also the confirmation bias kind of aspect of this. Yeah. And what's it? Frequency syndrome? or Yes. Know, um, yes. Which is called a thing. Bader-Meinhof. Yes. Yeah. Bader-Meinhof. Exactly. So remember that uh, spray painted uh, message that was on the wall that Cole saw a little while ago when he was in the future? Yeah. I do. Guess who sprays that on the wall? I know who. <gasps> in who front does of the it, FAA. Josh? I'm going to guess it's the lady that will eventually be in a blonde wig and oh, I'd be right. Cow. Yeah. I think you're right. And so she sprays it on the wall. She wants to get in touch with Cole somehow. And raspy voice guy is there again, who claims like he doesn't remember her or definitely doesn't remember. We don't know. But she's looking for Cole. Cole happens to show up that moment and is ready to give himself up. There's police nearby. He's waving at him. Hey, come take me away. I'm crazy, please. And she is dragging him away because now she is the person driving this train towards its conclusion. He's ready to kind of pump the brakes a little bit, but she is convinced that he is right. And so therefore Which, they are going to move forward. Again, it's got to not just be a psychiatrist, but a woman's fondest dream. I told a man that something was going on in his brain and he listened to me <laughs> and he's ready to get well. And all I have to do is tell him how to do that. I will sit him down on this bed and tell him the next steps. And he's pleading with her like, no, 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 I think you're right. I think I need this to be right, actually. We're all going to die in two weeks. That's too much. And she's just like, nope. In fact, what I've learned is I'm possibly crazy. I don't know. I'm with you. Tell me more about the apocalypse. Like, it's... Uh... And while they're doing all this on the outside, Jeffrey Goins is actually inside the FAA this time and is finding a mental logic for how the army of the 12 monkeys could have been said by Cole before he ever came up with it or how he came up with it. And Cole's... There is everybody trying to center themselves in some sort of reality that makes sense to them so that we can get on with the plot and move forward. Yeah, and all the other, we at this point, we learned that all the other kids in the 12 Monkeys Army, like they were completely bullshitting Catherine and Cole earlier when they were like, no man, he's doing all this crazy stuff. He made us do it. And in this scene, they're all completely on board with him. They like are hero worshiping him. And later on, when she is sitting in a hotel room with him and they're having this conversation about all the stuff that's going on and hey, this really happened. No, I believe I'm now crazy, etc. There is a line that he gives to her, which is his greatest need now, which I just want the future to be unknown. He's gone through all of this and he sort of has the Cassandra complex, right? He knows everything that's going to happen and- I'd rather not know. Ignorance is bliss. Correct. The problem with having this conversation in this hotel, even though it's a nice conversation, is that they are in a hotel that is not really meant for them to stay longer than an hour. Rent by the hour. Uh Uh-huh. And unfortunately, it is also the turf of a pimp by the name of Wallace, played by Joseph McKenna, who is not happy at all that this woman, who he thinks is a fantasy uh, act sort of woman, is working his territory. And this is a terrible moment in the movie. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing is like out of a different movie. It's like a weird cartoonish thing that doesn't have anything to do. Like, we're in the middle of the end of the time travel story, and now we've got Angry Pimp comes in for one second before he gets his ass beat. That's absolutely meant for the audience to envision this character as a hooker. Like, ooh, what if she was, though? Like, they're in this sleazy hotel. She's very beautiful. When the pimp busts in she's like on her knees by the side of the bed like she's holding his hand or something yeah. wait 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 clothed. talk talk slower and talk it slower. gets <laughs> shut the 
fuck up. I'm and the very first picture. thing that happens is he busts her in the face. Yeah, like, well, and I think yeah. it gives, like, other than, I think you're 100% correct. I think the other part is that it gives Bruce Willis's character a, like, traditional dude hero moment to, yeah. like, save the girl. Which he already did when he, like, saved her we, from being raped earlier. Right, but they keep inserting these things because they feel like it won't be a movie without it, I guess. Right. And we have feels, to sexualize her. We have feels to. feels regressive. Yeah. We have to. Even if you were okay with that and bought that whole bit of it, the end of the scene is also a little nonsensical in that she wants to escape. You know, he's beat the snot out of this guy. She keeps him from killing this guy. Stop there. You need to take his money instead because we need money. <laughs> and then he ends up dragging the pimp back into the bathroom and locking the door. And where you think he's going to do whatever he's going to do to this guy, but instead he's in there removing his own teeth so he can't be tracked. It, it does give you a, one weird. good line where he says, I was attacked by a crazy dentist. <laughs> True. Yes, that That's line a good is line. very <laughs> funny. I was attacked by a coked up whore and a crazy dentist. Yeah, you know, the people's uh, writing the script were like, can we at least put a button on this scene because it's so stupid (laughs) he makes a big choice and it's off camera and we don't get to see it as an audience and once again we're held a little bit of at arm's length from yeah you know being able to empathize with this person and see the choices and the leap from defending her and the kind of whatever rape fantasy that's about to happen and defending her and saving her to him coming out having taken his teeth out very like quickly, yes. also, with so no quickly. tools. We had a like, knife. What the hell? Yeah. just dug it out? I guess. I don't, I don't, Teeth, are, they're in there, man. Oh, they're you attached to your jaw. Like, <laughs> you can't just... How do you know which one? I right. know. He only took two out. What and if I it's did, one of the yeah. other It just looked like a regular tooth to me. Sir, have you seen the technology of your day? <laughs> that thing should be steampunked up all the time. Yeah, hell. I mean, it like, should be a CRT television <laughs> in your mouth. <laughs> They don't have nanites, <laughs> sir. Like, But we got this information about the teeth from an unreliable source to begin with. Right. So, I mean, what right. this should be is another scene where we're like, oh, was is this the right choice? But instead, it's just like, yes, he did it. It was correct. He got the right teeth. This is just pie yeah. where he's trepanning himself. Yes. Like, it's... <laughs> did you notice the time on the clock when he was doing this, too? No, I no. definitely did not. 2.30? Oh. This has been subgenre. <laughs> and now it isn't anymore. <laughs> they got to get out of here, right? So the, all of this crap has happened. This terrible, awful scene. <laughs> Nick's out. There's, there goes the headphones. They're both bloody. He's bloody because he pulled out his teeth. She's bloody because she's been near him because he pulled out his teeth and because she got knocked and in the she head. she got punched in the face. Yep, yep. And so they're running through downtown Philadelphia, bloody Looking like this, rough. right? Looking for a phone to do something, which we're not quite sure what that is yet, but we'll know in a second. But they're looking for a phone. As they're looking for the phone and she runs off to go make phone call, he's standing looking around and all of a sudden we get flashback of, oh, this is the space where I was standing where, hey, that's where the lion on top of the right. the thing was and here's where the wrong spiders were and whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and here's it's my band name, the, Wrong Spiders. The wrong spiders, The sure. dubious spiders. <laughs> and she comes back very, very excited from having made her phone call and says that she called the number that James had said he needed to call all these years back and it wasn't the future. It wasn't scientist. It was a carpet cleaning company. And she just left them a message and starts quoting back the message to him that she left. And he, after a few words, recognizes it and finishes the sentence with the have a Merry Christmas. It's the one they had played for him as a reconstructed message all those hours and years ago, which means the past is still locked in time and, and catching up. Yeah, You're almost to the end. 
if that is true, then they can't change anything yet, but they've got to keep trying. And so in order to keep trying, they've got to stay away from the police and every other thing, which means that they have to change clothes and they've got to get out of town. She books them tickets to get out of town and or, or is going to book them tickets to get out of town. But first they have to get something to wear and they end up in the department store where he had wandered through at the beginning of the movie and they're buying tropical clothing. Oh, look, that's looking familiar to all of us. There's a little poster for the Florida Keys that's plastered on the wall in case you didn't make the connection. And the angel statue, just to cap it all off, that angel statue that he saw at the very beginning is being raised to the ceiling behind him for some reason in the middle of a crowded department store. And I think part of what made this movie work better the first time I watched it was that it felt like there was a chance they could break the cycle you know, and so it felt exciting. Yeah. But when you know the cycle doesn't break, it's less intriguing, you know? So it's seeing it all come together is like, yeah, well, I guess I guess you guys are screwed. <laughs> did I did I miss something on the symbology of the, the angel statue? I don't remember seeing it at the beginning. Well, it's, it's the first um, thing he runs into when he gets in the department store oh, when everything's I all blue that. at the beginning. Okay. For me, it always felt like a, hey, isn't this crazy that we're seeing this very temporary thing? They're putting up Christmas decorations and then it's going to be frozen like that for hundreds and of I don't years. Th- yeah, right? I don't think it's any deeper than that. I mean, I you so, could probably yeah. AP English that angel statue and make it means something. Yeah. I also go back to um, La Jetée, I feel like has uh, pictures of statues and stuff I seem to recall. Yeah, there's that one where then like half the face is missing that's very memorable. Yeah. And then also there's a couple of times in La Jetée where they cut to a shot. It's like a sign in French that says like tête apostle, which means um, head apostle. So it has a sort of vaguely religious theme that I'm wondering if that's Gilliam or the screenwriters like aping La Jetée a little bit. That could bit. be, yeah. I mean, I, I think that idea of like, you know, what's free will and what's already set is a very religious discussion you could have. So, I mean, there's ways you could approach that through this movie. Mm-hmm. It's basically like putting the cross on your metal album cover, right? You know, it's <laughs> it's there to sort of imply religiosity right. or, yeah. or something, yeah. you know, just to get Add people some, talking. some depth without having yeah, to do the work. Yeah, I don't know that Gilliam thought through it that much. Yeah. A little later, <laughs> remember Jeffrey Gomes, remember the FAA kids, they are putting a plan into action. And what a good plan it is. What a great plan, which <laughs> which involves a, a minibus and a body bag. Yeah. Full of one Christopher Plummer. Kidnapped Full of a Christopher Plummer. Dad. Yep. They have kidnapped Jeffrey Goins' godlike father, the virologist, <laughs> and are taking him somewhere, right? Taking him hostage, taking yeah. him just to make a point. And he is under the impression, because of Catherine's call earlier, that they are doing something relating to the virus and make sure to tell Jeffrey that he's taken himself out of the loop, that he doesn't have access to it, so kidnapping him won't do any good. He doesn't know the code anymore, which he doesn't say, I don't have a virus that I've been developing that can murder humanity. He says, I don't have access to it anymore, which is another part where I come back to, okay, is he actively working on something like you that and why yeah and we don't get that deep into it he's a virologist so obviously all virologists do make bad viruses that's right what I've heard. that's what they do yeah we go from that moment we'll come back to the army of the 12 monkeys here in a minute but we go from that moment into a very surreal sequence this is where we circle back to there was mentioned very early on in this episode about the woman in a blonde wig mm-hmm. and the staginess in some ways of certain scenes and just kind of how everything was feeling I don't know the word for it but a little odd little different little something and all of that is given an exclamation point and a hammer on the head in case you didn't get it in this 
scene where Catherine and Cole are hanging out and putting on fake mustaches and doing all that, but they're doing it in a theater that is playing the movie Vertigo. So uh, there's our first Hitchcock reference. Mm -hmm. In the movie, it is the scene where they are talking about the rings of a tree and here I was born and here I died and and all of that, which helps tie, you know, this sort of Hitchcockian thing into this movie that we've been watching. And very soon thereafter, in the lobby of the movie theater, Cole catches up to Catherine, who has just booked them tickets to fly out of town, and she has now put on her blonde wig, a la all of the blondes in all of the movies of Hitchcock. And there's also Bernard Herrmann music playing in the background. Oh, oh, yeah, it's very, the soundtrack takes a sharp left turn. Yeah, all of a sudden we have just like what seems like a scene from a Hitchcock movie where I get why they did it, but it is very... She walks out of a red light... It all seems very old-fashioned for a few minutes. Yes. Gilliam uses this moment to sort of rubber stamp their relationship and says, I always remember you like this, and oh, I've always remembered you like this, and there's the big embrace that they really haven't had to this point. And that's just, if you were uncertain whether or not there was some sort of romance going on between them, there you go, there guys. You got it. Like, what a, what a grotesquely cheap trick yes. to yes. try to hitch his wagon to Hitchcock. Yeah. Hitch it to Hitch. No, I remember in film school, I did something where I had a, a film that had a reference reference to a, a, like a famous movie. And one of our teachers was like, referencing a great movie will not make your movie great. <laughs> and yeah, and then when they leave the theater Harry. on the marquee outside, so he, you know, he falls asleep, he wakes up and the birds is playing. Then as they run out, you can see it's a Hitchcock right. marathon. And yeah. they've been playing North by Northwest, Vertigo, the birds. And I think there was one other one that was on there. I can't yeah. remember now. If nothing else, this is the scene and the reason why this film will end up getting taught in film school classes in the next few years after this thing comes out hmm. is because it allows the instructor to you know sort of make ties to historical <laughs> films where right. like Gilliam's not stupid you know you put something in there and people go oh yeah isn't oh, that thought wow. thoughtful and deep yeah. can I side quest for a second here always the thing that bothers me about the Gilliams as men I would love to hear you weigh in on this well we will always have an opinion for you Movies as men. made by men for men but specifically for young men mm-hmm. who have been acculturated not to deal in subtleties and like examine and subtle emotional needs and stuff. It feels like the guy in your MFA, it's like, I'm such an artist, I'm such a poet, Mm. and this is a Hitchcock reference, and I put the camera on the side because that's how you know they're crazy. It's not subtle in any way, and yet it's often considered like very artistic and very nuanced, and for me, it feels like a shorthand of we have to represent big emotions in big ways Mm. or even small emotions in big ways, and if we don't hit it over the head, it doesn't feel genius. I could see that. I think also sometimes there are, you know, because director kind of has two jobs, right? Is to work with performances and work with the composition of the scene. Right. If the director is not good at performances, they sometimes go crazy with the set design or the staginess of it. Right. Because that's a big part of Gilliam's Right, exactly. Like you've never seen a great performance in a Terry Gilliam movie. Right. Right. But you've seen a lot of really interesting looking things. And I think like it may be like a crutch to lean on to say, look, no, I am good at this. Yeah. You're not going to see it in Bruce Willis's performance because he's just one note for the most part. But look at this crazy pile of garbage that I made. (laughs) Oh, we are. It is a big crazy pile of garbage. But then why does everybody consider it so avant-garde? I totally agree. I think that it is a very male thing. And I think it's also a very American male thing. Mm -hmm. It's kind of funny that this pretty elegant, artistic, experimental French film was adapted by the big Hollywood studio by an American director and American writers. And it goes from something subtle and artful to something like over the top, 
like muddled loud and loud bombastic I, I really you'd have to wonder like what would have happened if a french filmmaker had expanded yolajete yeah. into a feature film I, I think it'd be very very different well and you said something at the beginning that would be interesting to hear you talk more about which is the idea that like cynicism as a replacement for a actual emotional engagement you feel is more seen from men especially in film i just said at the very beginning of this 12 monkeys is one of those movies that all of my boyfriends had and mm-hmm. always lauded as like a genius film and i had a boyfriend who sat me down 15 years ago and had me watch brazil and was and set it up like very intelligent emotionally nuanced guy who was just like terry gilliam's a genius you have to watch this and i hated every minute of it there was nothing in it that i could relate to it Mm. was just noise and chaos that wanted me to believe like i have the same problem with tarantino like tarantino over and over and over again is like behold my art it is my art and if you do not like my art you're a dumb bitch. Uh, and I feel like within the first five minutes of a Tarantino movie, I'm like, I get it. I get it. It's not that it's inartly done. It's not that they're bad movies. I just don't find anything relatable about the mm. way that they're presented. They're not no. for me. Referencing past film in 95 would not be a new thing. Referencing past film and and sort of either pastiching or outright ripping things from previous films has been done throughout the history of cinema. Sure. I think it came into a much bigger play in the 90s, probably for a lot of reasons. Because if you think in that time, you had movies that were really pulling from everywhere. So everything Tarantino, pulling from all the, the different 70s movies and Hong Kong action stuff and whatever. You had Swingers, Doug Liman's Swingers that came out that pulled a lot of really direct references from old movies. You know, I can't say that this is why it is, but I think there was something in the air, too, that that was also the era of hip hop coming into its own and sampling and mining the past for things that could be considered relevant in the future and twisting them around. You know, not to say that people were doing this consciously, but I think that there was something in the air around that time that made that feel new because we, it was it was being brought to an elevated way or being used in a different way, and it it has so in the lingered. context of and in the context of its moment, it did feel it felt well, experimental right. and in interesting. The, and in yeah, the context new, of its time, newer. nobody was really doing that or hadn't done it like that in a long time. Right now, everybody does it. Well, yeah. but I'm not even just talking about sampling. I'm just yeah. talking about the aesthetic of any movie, whatever its aesthetic is. That sort of <laughs> this is a Family Guy line insists upon itself. Mm-hmm. I think though, part of it is what you were talking. about about some movies are for different groups of people, yes, right? That's just sure. how it is. Nothing wrong with that. But there's something about young men, especially, that will yeah. make them say, everyone has to love this yes. because I love this. Yeah. In the Barbie movie, when they all have to sit the girls down and make them watch The Godfather because <laughs> it's their favorite Which is movie. a movie I haven't seen, and if I tell any man I haven't seen He'll The Godfather, they're watch like, <gasps> his like, butthole clenches right. so tight. Like, and, if, and I just you know, have it. I just have it. If you were to talk to a group it. of 10 women, they would all have been shown a movie by a man at some point to be like, you must appreciate, you must appreciate me. Even though this was only made for me, you must appreciate it. Well, and oh. they would not accept the same thing coming from the woman to the man. You know, that power dynamic doesn't exist in the same way. And one thing that I've learned a lot about the ways, and I know we can cut all of this. This is just a conversation that I was interested in having. But one of the things that I've learned about the ways that, again, this is acculturation. I don't think it's some sort of genetic predisposition, but that like men in the United States or the Western Hemisphere tend to relate to their partners or want their partners to connect to them is through the things that they enjoy. Definitely. And not so much necessarily like so many dudes are like, I'm part of the school of hard knocks. I'm the school of life. I'm just 
discovering myself. There's never who I am intrinsically. There's how I express my emotions through my hobbies and things that and I enjoy. I think part of that is the acculturation, like you said, of men. You get defined by your actions like you have to do something before you're worth something and so since you haven't done anything right you take someone else's work and you say oh i relate to this yes. so i will share my relation to this with you and then you will see that i also have these qualities of this person who made art right even though i made nothing and well and it's not that women don't have similar like right, connections no. to the things that we enjoy and stuff but i think there's maybe also another much bigger conversation here about like male gaze movies and female like the barbie it's movie true. is a perfect like female gaze movie yeah great you movie know. yeah okay anyway whatever thank you you for indulging me i've just these were thoughts that i had while i watched it that's good radio okay it didn't have enough ass talk in it <laughs> sorry <laughs> I, at the end of the day i have an english degree so i did have my cheeks out for daddy during that whole discussion <laughs> thank you fabian we could see that on the zoom and we appreciate it <laughs> you're not even looking at the zoom i could feel the power <laughs> of the cheeks of the soapy cheeks okay sorry let's just get back to the ky jelly stuff okay they have tickets to go to key west that is where we were before we were sidebar, talking about you can every, cut all before the sidebar. no the sidebar is great and i'm going to use it because okay. i need extra content right um spin it off into a separate podcast. I am That's a right. content creator. That's true. They are heading to the airport in the morning in a cab and the cab driver here, this is one of the characters like the pimp that just sort of stuck out to me and I don't think belonged in the movie, but the cab driver played by Annie, Annie Golden. Annie Golden is there. Yeah, Annie Golden. And oh, the, haven't you seen the highway today? What <laughs> yeah, the hell is going on here? <laughs> Why is she in Philly? Like, she's <laughs> definitely not a Philadelphia cab this driver. Happens, but this happens in like movies that are set in LA all the time yeah. too. Yeah. Like, why do they all you have get in and Joe Pesci? She's driving the cab. <laughs> oh, what are we doing over here? They are trying to cross the bridge to get out of town. She lets them know that the traffic is backed up because of the army of the 12 monkeys, which is something they never expected to hear come out of anybody else's mouth. <laughs> but it's all over the radio. The army of the 12 monkeys, Jeffrey Goins and the rest of them, have not released a virus and a pox and a plague on everybody that's going to kill us. They've gone to the zoo and opened the doors and all the animals have gotten out. And I think this is one of the more clever parts of the movie. Like, even on rewatch, I'm like, yes, this is a good last act twist. Yes. You think you know who the bad guy is and then you're like oh, we're disoriented and we got to figure it all out again i did feel the last act was the strongest definitely and so the we did it that he's found on all of these signs and spray paint it doesn't mean the virus it means the animals right so all of that is an, an interesting twist which gives maybe a moment of hope to both of them of oh this isn't real we're all going to be fine which i thought was for me i was like okay is this the kind of misdirection where I'm supposed to think that the animals are, that's just step one. And there's mm. more like he's going to go on and do and yeah. release the virus. I felt the same way. And I was wondering if there was something about the animals that was linked to the virus, which yeah. obviously it's not influenced by COVID at all. But <laughs> yeah, I was wondering exactly like you, if this was just one part of a bigger scheme. Right. Ooh, speaking of, Bat Boy was in the movie. What? Remember COVID? Anybody remember that? <laughs> no. No. Okay. I prefer not COVID. to. They get to the airport. Of course, there are police there wandering around, which they are trying to avoid because there's these wanted posters out for them. And so they have on their appropriate disguises, such as they are Hawaiian shirts and long wigs and mustaches and all that kind of stuff. Great. That's going to work. Also, this is the haziest airport I've ever seen in my life. There is like a eight fog machines going at all times in this place. What's going on? They walk in the door and I'm like, what is it? Is someone because they just, have an outlawed smoking in right? airports Is there just yet? someone with a cigar right off screen? What is happening here? That's nice. 90s for dreamlike. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh huh. Also, these pre 9/11 airport regulations are fantastic. Well, I know. Like, just right? walk just to walk the gate. In. Yeah. Oh, I'm. My name is Susan. They're like, oh, well, we don't need to see your ID. Just <laughs> get on go. the plane. On the very comfortable looking plane, yes. we see the 
interior of shortly. He recognizes and tells her out loud, I've been here before. We know that, but he's starting to put the puzzle together and we're trying to figure out in which form. We're thinking of him as a kid, right? right. Being there at the airport. She goes off to buy tickets or to, I guess to pick up the tickets at the desk and gives him his first kiss. So they've had their embrace in the last time. She gives him a kiss here. Okay, look, everybody, look, we're a couple. Um, and the first kiss is when he's got that terrible mustache, mustache. on. And you can tell she's got like, she's like trying not to get the mustache in her mouth. And there's a chance that's his first kiss in his whole life he's been underground with this only his jose oh. <laughs> and he got to do it with a he, fake mustache and jose could have been kissing the, you don't possible. know it's the kermit miss piggy kiss from the great muppet caper where, they, <laughs> where the, mustache the mustache comes off on her yeah <laughs> as she grabs the tickets she butterfingers and drops them on the ground when she's reaching down to pick them up off the ground she's picking them up unbeknownst to her next to the suitcase that we have seen in the flashback that the guy in the yellow coat has been holding that has all these different travel stickers on it that's being kicked forward in line by the person who is the person in the yellow coat standing in line behind her. Yeah, and now we've got David Morse again back in his creepy mode and he's got his uh, his vials and they have to examine the vials. Before they before they get to the examine vials. the vials, examine them. Cole uses his number that he has to call that answering machine again and basically tell the future that the army of the 12 monkeys is not a real thing. Right. And oh, by the way, I'm not coming back. Right. So don't come find me. But he didn't realize they had caller ID. <laughs> and they were able to send someone They had it in his other tooth. Right. And the guy at the ticket counter, the, the David uh, Morse uh, character, is there with the ticket agent who is counting off the ticket she's giving to him mm -hmm. in the order that we have heard that the virus was released. So San Francisco, New Orleans, Rio, Rome, Kinshasa, Karachi, Bangkok, Peking. So everything is coming together and Cole is not yet in the middle of it. Cole is off in the bathroom trying to get the damn mustache that won't stick to his face to stick to his face. <laughs> mm -hmm. And outside, once he comes out from putting on the mustache, who is waiting for him but Jose, who catches him oh. on the escalator or whatever it is and basically gives him that talk that we had talked about before of why did you pull out your teeth? That was a dumb thing. Well, he's like, hey man, we got your message. Yeah, what's your, me what's your message mean? like, that was five minutes ago. He's like, if you learned nothing about time travel, <laughs> dumbass. <laughs> It 40 would, years for and us. And he even says, like, it would have been nice if you guys had figured that out sooner and left us that message first. I uh, guess, but it, you're... He it, says that. It's 40 years There's from now. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't listen to both messages? <laughs> what the f***? Why didn't you listen? Well, you it's have to check travel. all your messages right. at once. You can't, like, you stand and start responding after the first email and then realize someone canceled the request. <laughs> Young Cole simultaneously is being led by his mother through security. They're headed into the arena of play here. Catherine is standing in line in the gift shop to get whatever, you know, Tic Tacs, and finds out that she is standing behind the doctor, whatever his name is, Peters. Yeah. Standing behind Peters, who she recognizes from the front page of the newspaper, the USA Today, that's sitting there, where he's standing in a picture with Dr. Goins. Right. Oh my goodness, that's the guy who works with Dr. Goins, who is in the airport at the time we thought there was going to be a virus right. released. Everybody, look what's coming together. And, I mean, the fact that this all plays out the way he remembers it seems to indicate that the virus will not be stopped. It will do the exact, even though we see then, I mean, we can discuss the last scene later, but all of the things up to the time the guy got on the plane happened exactly as he remembers it as a child. So all of this was how it went the first time. Yep. Yep. Jose gives Cole a gun, says, here, you need to shoot somebody. And Cole says, yeah, but who? And here, shoot somebody with start us. Start shooting. <laughs> Doesn't and have time. Is America. Openly in an airport. <laughs> He's like, here's your gun, sir. Right. <laughs> 
has no time. Does it, does your gun need an extra seat? Do we need to do that? <laughs> has no time to figure out who he's supposed to shoot because Catherine busts in and says that that Dr. Peters guy is here and he's an apocalypse nut. I've met this guy before. That's the guy you need to go get. We need to head toward the San Francisco gate. The San Francisco gate um, to <laughs> go and reference. to go and run this guy down so that he can't get on the plane. And so off they go. OK, so to the scene you were mentioning, Nick, which is Peters, before he can ever put this plan to use to go to San Francisco and Karachi and the rest of it, has to get through airport security. Right. And airport security at that time was not what it is now. It's true. It but sure it still had it. it still had x-rays and it still had people making you open cases. And that's what happens here. I mean, this is the part that I think makes it, at least to me, feel like the virus still escaped because he opens it in the airport. Right. So then even if he doesn't get to go to all those other cities, it'll get there eventually because you have two weeks before it kicks in. It'll spread the, through I the whole I got the sense that was the plan. Like hmm. the way that he's sort of smirking while it's happening. Hmm. He's just like, yes, make me open these files. Yeah, I think from a story perspective, you do it so that you don't leave the audience wondering as much at yeah. the end. Because you see the lady in, in on the plane at the end, you think, oh, she's going to stop him. But he's already opened it, so the game yeah. is over. Yeah. You, know, you can't put it back in the bottle now. And he's told the future people in when they were quizzing him, like the first time this thing was detected was in Philadelphia. Correct. Right. On yeah, December so we know this is, this is ground zero. So he has to open the vials because, you know, they look suspicious and he holds it under the nose of the guy. <laughs> Make sure he really gets it. He gives him the whole Iocane powder yeah. thing. Yeah, like, exactly. it's tasteless, yeah. Take odorless. a deep breath. <laughs> Which means Dr. Peters himself is also exposed dead. at yes. that point, and so yes. he's dead. Unless he's got some secret antidote mm, or something. But might. And so they give him back his vials. He starts to head on his way, and boom, this is where, where we started catches up with where we are. So we started with the flashback of the guy running through the airport and the gun and there's a shooting and there's a lady running towards him and in this moment Cole sees Dr. Peters grabs the gun that he has bursts through security to shoot the guy is in turn before he can shoot Peters shot by cops Peters runs past young Cole who with his steely blue eyes does the little squint that's supposed to be Bruce Willis. Right now He's you can't see it, it, but I'm doing the... Doing that's great radio, face. Nick. I'm doing the face. <laughs> imagine, if you're listening at home, imagine me making the most rectal face. <laughs> Don't imagine that. I think that's how most people imagine <laughs> you. Add extra. Catherine runs past all of the everybody, the guards and everything, and does the whole reach out towards them, does the whole get to him and tries to hold the blood in as it's pulsing out of his heart and he's obviously dead. And the whole flashback plays back. And now we understand if all of this is true, what he has been dreaming about this whole time. And of course, it is, as we suspected from the very first scene, the little boy was watching his own self, his own future self she catches, die in an airport. Yeah, she makes eye contact with him and they hold a long look. And at first it's sort of touching him, then it's kind of creepy. She's like <laughs> looking at him like, one day I'm going to kiss your fake mustache, <laughs> little boy. Hey kid, put on this mustache. <laughs> Let me see how it looks. No, no, I'm not ready yet. Just make your mouth a little more. No. No, no. Aren't you a father? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know why they allowed that. I wouldn't have. Uh, no, even didn't even pass the test. <laughs> Out of all of that, the thing we did not see in the vision, in the dream, is that Dr. Peters, at the end of all of this commotion, escapes. He gets out of where all the shooting is happening. He runs because nobody really understands that he's the target of all of this stuff. And he runs to his gate and gets on the plane. And apparently they're letting planes go while there's a shooting in the airport. Right. It's fine. The good old days. But he actually makes it onto the plane to San Francisco, finds himself a seat in first class, sits down as the champagne comes around. But 
in turning to see the person next to him finds out that he is sitting next to the lady from the future that Which was the astrophysicist. doesn't make sense. Well, okay. What are we supposed to take away from this? Well, let's let's I think talk about there. this. I think that's the do thing that is- we have to? No, let's do, because this is how the movie ends. This is it. I this, know. This is what we get is him sitting there and he says, oh, hey, how are you? What do you do or what's your deal? And she tells him that she's in insurance. Right. That's the line. So then the question is, like, is she there to maintain the continuity of the time loop to make sure he gets where he's supposed to go? Is she there to stop him, in which case she's too late? Although that shouldn't stop you as a time traveler because you could just come back earlier. Right? But, uh, Any or, time they're like, oh, I'm too late. Well, just or was all of this part of, like, the plan to begin with and she was always there and she helped him do this the first time and that's, you know, like, they want the future that they have where they're in power and they're all the stuff insuring. they did with Cole was ensuring that it happened the way it was supposed to. Or is is it yeah. that she was on that plane back in 1995 and this is just coincidence, dumb coincidence, that she was sitting next to the person oh, who ultimately she, she would be... aged in the last... 50 years. Uh, 30 years, right. 40 years. That's, that's, right that's the real mystery. Yeah, what's her skincare routine? <laughs> Maybe it's Maybelline. <laughs> that I'm an insurance line is the most confusing part of the movie for me. Yes. And probably just because it comes last. But it's the thing that throws everything that you thought you knew in this movie back into a mode of questioning. Yes. What is this whole damn thing that I've been watching about and what is supposed to happen from this point forward? Yeah. And I'm guessing that's on purpose to try and make it more of like a head scratcher kind of like, oh, everyone will go home and talk about this. And we want that. But, but it's just incomprehensible. I, I think that if you assume that she's there to stop him, then she's failed. But she could just try again by going back earlier in time. Like the time travel mechanics writing time travel is the worst idea you Don't can do never it. do it correctly talking about it on a podcast is the second worst idea <laughs> there there's always a reason it doesn't make sense because it doesn't actually exist and so you're just making it up and if you're making it up then there's no rules and if there are rules you have to be ironclad with them and yes. it's almost impossible to do it correctly see looper yes, yes looper fun in a lot of ways but doesn't make sense if you dig into it too much primer works primer is probably the only one that works but it's an incomprehensible mess of a movie. <laughs> my friends, it was one of the I haven't only seen it times yet. my friends and I got into an actual like fight. We all watched. There are it together some nerds that feel very and... strongly about yeah. Primer as a good movie, and it's not. I love the idea of the ending and that she's there as insurance to make sure that it does not change, that the outcome remains. But yeah. I wish that they had given you some kernel of knowledge in the beginning, or every time we see the scientists and the astrophysicist to understand a motivation behind that. Yeah, because yeah, she's not even like her characterization is completely different she just looks like mm -hmm. any old normie i mean if again for me if not for the captions where it says like ast it says astrophysicist or something yeah. as to her name i wouldn't have made the connection and then also why is that character an astrophysicist right later? they never did anything related to anything? outer space yeah I don't know. there's a microbiologist character on that panel of scientists yeah. why is it not mm -hmm. that character that you would, would make more so, sense yeah. for that one to be on the top of the, like i don't or if you're going to do it you need to pick someone more unique looking than just kind of this older lady. white lady yeah why did they do it that way they could have just ended it one scene before the little boy's eyes or something no like, no been, i would have thrown the vcr it, against it the wouldn't wall have been or any more whatever happening <laughs> than any of the rest of the film yeah but that i can't or end on that little kid's face although we do end on that little kid's face technically like after we're on the airplane which is where it should have ended if it didn't end the scene before yeah. we have to follow little cole to his car and end watch on his eyes at the end of it yeah it, it's just off. that's horrific and it should not be in there but <laughs> So one more thing. So am I missing something or is there a reason? I mean, I understand why 
Cole would remember Catherine, but how in the beginning does Catherine have a sense of deja vu when she meets Cole? There's no reason for her to have any sense of deja vu. Because time is a Mobius strip. Like that's that's sort of that what is supposed to be this is. No, yeah. but- it's the loop. She remembers him from a past life or from having relived this who knows how no, many times. No, because that's not how the loop works. Now, because this Catherine, at the end of this sequence of events, she's gonna this die Catherine's like just going to go to jail. She's going to die. She's going to be carted off to jail or whatever. She will proceed in a linear fashion and never encounter either of these characters again. So there is one other option for what the insurance line means, which is that she's there to ensure she gets the sample of the virus from the guy. I think takes it back that's what future. I originally took it as, was the whole point was to get a pure sample of right. the virus. And so if for some reason Cole failed, which he did, right. and if they couldn't change time, which or, they couldn't, then she was there to... Were they ever no, trying to change time? it's dumber than that, you guys. No. It's dumber than that. I Is it because she's trying to sell him insurance? <laughs> no. It's, she's actually an insurance It's because salesman. he succeeded. So he goes forward, he tells him like, it's the 12 monkeys, it's Philadelphia, we did it, right? Whatever. And then, he, yes, he does have his follow-up where he says, like, I'm not coming home. I don't know if she ever gets that message or whatever. But, like, they now know to be in Philadelphia. She's like, I have to, oh, now we just got to send someone to be in Philadelphia. To they get already the knew to be in Philadelphia. They had talked about it with him before he went back. All right, well, then they sent him back again, though, to keep making sure. The goal, though, was to find the virus, right? So now she has it she in the case next to her. She now knows where it is. Right? So she's there to get it from him. I guess that's, Maybe like, that's, that's the more the, cool, straightforward took, version. He succeeded, and I now the doctor went back in the past to follow through through on the mission? I guess, yeah. Like, I'm here to ensure that we get this virus we sample. It. We yeah. found you. We have it now. Yes. But now you've got we these can... time lords that have the <laughs> capability, established capability to send people through time. They're right. not great at it, no. but they've done it. And they choose the biggest derp out of their collection to be the guy to go back. Yeah. Clearly, Jose, by this point, we know at the end of the movie that Jose is way more on top of yeah. than Cole. We've done this rigmarole multiple times, and we're just here to make sure that the underground future remains intact yeah. because maybe the alternative is actually worse. Right. And in this future, we're in charge and we want to keep right. that that way. Because you I'm could an also astrophysicist just... here. <laughs> I didn't even graduate high school. <laughs> yeah. He gave me a diploma. Can you believe that? Like, why wouldn't you just time pawn him into a lab, directly into a lab, just shoot him into yeah. a lab, grab a sample and come back? And now that the main yeah. doctor is here, it implies that they've gotten better at the time travel thing. Yeah. Yeah. So if like send her back a little earlier. Or maybe they were always good at the time travel thing. Yeah, and they, awesome. and they, yeah, yeah maybe. Just to World War One for funsies. <laughs> just for funsies. They <laughs> yeeted him into, you know, 19 yeah, whatever. Guys, watch this. Watch this. Oh, look at this. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that's the other thing about Jose. He's all scarred up at this point yeah. from his little brush with death <laughs> in the trenches. Yeah. And he's still out here doing it. Like... I know. That guy's got some stick to <laughs> He's doing way better. He's like, they gave me a Porsche. Let's wrap this up. Let's wrap it up. Here's the thing that we can say about this. And I will preface this for the last time this season, maybe the last time ever, certainly the last time with this sound. Last look. This film is going to start confusingly. It's going to be confusing. It's going to end confusingly. And that is what we can know for certain about 12 Monkeys. Everything else is up for grabs and up to interpretation, depending on who you are, when you saw this and how many times you've seen it and which chemicals you were under the influence of (laughs) when it played. This movie was written and filmed by 12 Monkeys. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's the last looks on this film. That's it. That's all you got to know. And that does enough for us to lead us into You Can't Handle the Truth. 
You Can't Handle the Truth is our multiple choice quiz segment here on Subgenre. This is where I typically ask my guest host a series of three questions. If you can answer two of the three correctly, you win a prize that I typically have no way of giving you. We have three of us, so I'm going to just ask each one of you a separate question okay. for your individual prize. I have four questions because Alan Mall was supposed to be here to right, answer one, one of them. Group, group question. We'll have one group okay. one at the Ooh. end. Okay, Ooh. here we go. So uh, who wants to start? I'll go. Okay, so Charlotte, you are playing for a monkey and a roast beef sandwich. Here we go. Which with... one will I eat first? <laughs> Here we go with question number one. Okay. 12 Monkeys is one of the few movies where the habit of Brad Pitt's character eating on screen, which he does a lot, mm -hmm. doesn't prominently appear. But for the others, in 2016, a cookbook was released based on Brad's cinematic snack resume. What was its tasty title? Was it A, Fat Brad? B, Pit of Your Stomach, or C, The Curious Casserole of Benjamin Button. All of these Well, I hate all of them. Please don't be fat, Brad. <laughs> I'm, you know, there's the one that I think it is and the one that I hope it is, and I'm, I'm going to go with B. B, Pit, pit of Your Stomach? Pit of Your Stomach. Oh, please don't be the f no, it's Fat Brad. What? No, Why? What's Fat Brad? That, that doesn't even mean? make sense. A according to the book's distributor, the 2016 Fat Brad the Cookbook is a, quote, definitive exploration into the on-screen eating habits of William Bradley Brad Pitt. Part fan fantasy, part filmic study, it meticulously reimagines the best scenes where Brad chomps. Why would You've he be fat? nothing. What's <laughs> the reference? He's famously thin. The things you can get in Brad it. Brad Pitt fat, which would be fine, but he <laughs> He's not. He's one of the more in shape guys around. <laughs> I would have gone with pity your stomach, but the things you can make from the cookbook include uh, Rusty's Car Park Burger from Ocean's Eleven. Don't care. And unfortunately, Tyler Durden's questionable seafood bisque from Ugh. Fight Club. Oh, no. Yeah. I'll go next. I'll go next. Oh, oh, Fabian. Fabian's next. next. Okay, Fabian's next. All right, Fabian. Okay. Fabian, you are playing for electronically operated sexual devices, which Ow. comes I from... I should have had this one. <laughs> you can Weirdly, trade. Weirdly, it's also called a fat brad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go, Fabian. You ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Question number two. Before he was the director of some nutcase films like Brazil and 12 Monkeys, Terry Gilliam was, of course, a cast member and animator for the British comedy troupe Monty Python. In a seven degrees of Kevin Bacon sort of way, he's also connected to the rock bands Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, and Genesis. Why? Is it A, all three of those bands invested in Monty Python films? Is it B, Gilliam played with all three as a session oboist? Or is it C, each band's music plays somewhere in the background of at least one Gilliam film? Wow. And it was Pink Floyd, Zeppelin, and Genesis? Correct. I'm going to go with A. You're going with A, that they all invested in Monty Python films? Yes. That is correct. Yeah. The budget, I think, of what was the first one? It was uh, Holy, Holy Grail. Grail. Yeah. That was the first one? Yep. So it was about 200,000 pounds, which was raised by convincing 10 separate investors to pitch in 20,000 pounds apiece. One of those investors was a guy named Tony Stratton Smith, who was head of Charisma Records, who just happened to represent Pink Floyd, 
Led Zeppelin, and Genesis. And so in twisting some arms, he got those bands to kick in their money as well. Wow. So Interestingly, uh, Life of Brian was financed almost entirely by George Harrison. And he appears in the movie as one of the people seeking help from Brian. In and no he, he sometimes says, I have the most expensive ticket to a movie ever. Because <laughs> he paid for the whole film. Huh. Just because he wanted to see it. All right. So we've got two questions down. Couple more to go. Nick, are you okay. ready for your question? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Nick Heim, you are going to be playing for drugs know your doses know your doses <laughs> can i play for something else no no you can play for a, a monkey and a roast beef sandwich of charlotte will trade you okay you i will not i'm gonna trade some drugs for a monkey here we go for number three nick heim i'm ready the world's first school of dentistry was opened in baltimore one of the uh, places in our film here Perfect. in the year 1840 which one of these famous 19th century doctors was a noted alum of the Baltimore College of Dental Surgery? Is it A, American criminal and son of gang leader Ma Barker, Doc Barker? Is it B, Old West gunslinger Doc Holliday? Or is it C, Major League Baseball catcher for the Boston Bean Eaters, Doc Yeager? What year? The school opened in 1840, but this is just which of these 19th century no, no. docs? Well, I've only heard of one of them, so I'm going to go with the one I've heard of, even though it's probably incorrect, Doc Holliday. Wow. Yes. That is actually correct. He is called Doc Holliday because he was a dentist. That I did wow. know, and so that was why I made that guess. You're real smart. Oh, thank you. He had graduated from that dental school. He had moved to Atlanta and become a successful dentist. He had tuberculosis while being a dentist, and it, that, that turned out to be a thing his patients didn't like. So he had to move out west to a drier climate, tried dentistry again, still had the tuberculosis, and ended up being a gunslinger and a card shark. You know, had, if had you imagine Doc Holliday as a dentist, he's much less cool. <laughs> because, like, can you imagine if you're, like, in the Old West and you see your dentist on the street with, like, a gun? You'd be like, well, that's not cool. Well, All right, we got one question left and I if, if you get it right we're going to call uh, all of them correct and all of you are going to receive uh, tropical shirts and mustaches perfect for a trip to the Florida Keys. Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> Here now we, go. we can all finally get our first kiss. <laughs> <laughs> that with go. each other right? Ew. No, no. Too many mustaches. <laughs> All right, here we go for our last question. You must. I must ask you a question. <laughs> but I'm shaving it for later. Oh, no! Question four. Yeah. Speaking of monkeys, according to UCLA professor Susan Perry, rainforest-dwelling capuchin monkeys like to invent new behaviors that then spread through the group, sort of like a virus. Things like shoving their finger in another's eye, sucking on each other's tails, fingers, or ears, or biting off a tuft of hair from one monkey's face to pass around with their mouths to everybody else. Are there any better examples? <laughs> which, which of these other odd behaviors is even more common than those? Is it A, poo painting, <laughs> B, Oops, lice juggling, us. or C, pee washing? Oh, boy. You know, my, Look, I'm not here to kink. This is the right folks, group but... for this question. Yeah, I so, think. you know, I, I think there's no juggling going on. Like, that's too complicated <laughs> too for a How monkey. would you do it? Yeah. They'd be super talented. They would be talented, but if it has to be I the mean, whole they group. They have very tiny little hands, but the lice, aren't, I mean, they're not going to juggle. They have no heft, you know? No. You can't, you can't <laughs> juggle them. They're just going to float away. <laughs> So they're washing peas? First of all, do they grow the peas? Where do they, where do they get these peas? What are they washing them with? Yeah, I think they're urine. washing themselves with urine. That's the pea what, washing. Is it pea washing oh. or what? Uh, it would be A, poo painting, B, lice juggling, or C, pea washing. I'm going with pea washing. I think, yeah, that's what I I'd say. Fabian, monkeys... what do you say? I'm going to go with the group on this one. It's either A or C for me. All right, let's, let's say C. C, pea washing? Pea yeah. washing. Yeah! Yeah! yeah. 
Let's yes. start washing ourselves with pee. <laughs> Capuchins and other New World monkey species do something that's called urine washing, where they oh pee on their hands and they use it to wash their feet. Urine Scientists luck. aren't exactly sure why, but it may calm down aggressive friends. It may convey sexual <laughs> excitement. I don't think that helps. Or it might Makes improve. my friends way more aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting a little heated and Charlie just peed on me. <laughs> Really took the edge off. Yeah, I calmed right down. <laughs> it can be used to calm down aggressive friends. It might be used no, to convey sexual excitement. In some circles. Mm. Or probably, most likely, to improve their grip on slippery trees. No! <laughs> you know how you get I mad when people <laughs> lick their thumb to turn a page? Imagine if they pissed on their own hand first. <laughs> there, now I got a good grip. <laughs> You know in the gymnastics when they put the chalk on their hands before they go on the high bar? Just dip your hands in the toilet instead. There we go. Aim your foot just right straight on. Here we go. <laughs> oh, and everyone left. <laughs> well, that's it. Everybody wins all the prizes. Yay! Good Being job, everybody. Awful. It really is the worst. the worst. Why can't we be fish? <laughs> well, we are also fish. No. <laughs> That sound means it's time for Rave Rental or Refund. This is where we give our final, 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 final judgment on the film. Is it a rave? This film is amazing. Your boyfriend should make you watch it right now. <laughs> is, is it a rental? Hey, it's fine. We'll go rent it later and I'll make you watch it then. Right. Or is it a refund? This movie is awful, but we should probably watch it anyway because you've never seen it. Mm. Rave Rental or Refund, Fabian Marquez. I'm going to say if you paid for this movie, take a time pond back to <laughs> point before you did that and think again because it's a f***ing <laughs> refund. Ooh, wow. you went all the way to refund. Why is that, Fid? Oh, I just found it to be aggressively lame in terms of like, its <laughs> characters. Like, give me nothing to invest in in a character. Give me poor Madeline Stowe doing the best she can with just plot points and mm. nothing from a meaty character. Yeah, and just unnecessarily complex plot that really goes nowhere. And all she gets is punched in the face in a blonde wig. Like, yep. Yep. Well, she gets a little mustache on the upper lip, too. <laughs> no hands peed on, though. No, that's no, not likely. one yeah. hand. Nick, what do you say? You know, I, I'd probably come down as rental because I think that a lot of films are cookie cutter recreations of each other. And they just have a look that is like the movie look that people replicate over and over again. And this movie looks and feels like its own thing. Now, all of Terry Gilliam's movies kind of are within a family. So like if you've seen one of his movies, you could probably skip it. But if you've never seen a Terry Gilliam movie, I think it'd be worth checking out because finding a director who is allowed to do a unique looking and feeling like set design and production design and the general look and feel of a film is rare because usually it's dictated by corporate interest to such a point that you don't get anything unique. And I think the visuals of this movie are different and interesting. And I think that the basic concept that they took from La Jetée is still interesting. The idea like this guy as a kid saw a vision of his own death. And then at the end of the movie, we see him live it out from the other side of the thing. That's a cool idea. And I think you could improve this movie a lot with better characters and a more coherent structure structure to the time travel and the goals that people are going for. But I would still probably say rental, especially if you were looking at the 90s in general, 
it's different than other stuff you'll see from that same time period. Something that you just said just reminded me, and I can't believe we skipped this. There is a moment in the film where Bruce Willis says, I am seeing dead people. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. I was going to bring that up. All oh, I can see are dead yeah. people. All I can see are dead people. I didn't even make that connection. Yeah. And this came out pre-six Yes, yeah. that is correct. Yeah, fair yeah. amount pre, yeah. Four or five years. And also, it took place in Philly, which is where That's the Sixth Sense true. took place. So maybe this was all just a dream. And now he has <laughs> dementia. Yes, that's a less fun fact. So, <laughs> maybe M. Night, maybe he was like an extra. Oh, it could be. Mm -hmm. We have one refund. We have one rental. Charlotte, mm -hmm. what say you? I was hate posting about this on Blue Sky last night, and I'll just read the last. I don't know what that is. Blue like, Sky is the it's queer like Twitter. Twitter, but without a Nazi running it. Here's the last in that rant. Man, I just really hated that. It took me four hours to get through that two hour film. An agonizing haul in every possible way. A crucible of psychic damage. <laughs> I got a free stars trial to watch this film and I will be demanding a refund. Mm. It was one that I did not enjoy the viewing experience the way I thought I would. It was exhausting Same. to watch. By 20 minutes in, I paused it and looked at my dog and said, I'm only 20 minutes into this. <laughs> Movie. I said I'm the same thing. I'm so That's... tired. I'm so tired. How am I going to get through this? If I were not doing this out of love of my friend, I would have rage quit. <laughs> DNF'd. Absolutely the f not. I feel you. I was less than halfway through and I was like, are you oh, kidding me? Oh my God. It's so, we didn't talk about the pace, but it is a very plotting It's very film. slow, it's yeah. Slow it feels a lot longer than it is. It hurts to watch. Unfortunately, it hurts to think about. I wish I hadn't watched it because <laughs> I remember too. loving it and I watched it again. I'm like, oh, I don't love this. <laughs> Somebody, another guy uh, in all of this said to me, that's really interesting. I think it's quite a well-regarded film, but I could be wrong. And I said, Yes, it is a very well-regarded film, and I was looking forward to finding out why. Now that I've seen it, I still am. Hmm. It does not hold up, unfortunately. Not as much. Yeah. I'm going to be the one disagreement here. I think that... You picked it. Well, right. But I also <laughs> picked a bunch of other crap, too, that I didn't like this season. <laughs> Twelve Monkeys, for whatever reason. I'm sure there's a number of reasons. I may be a time traveler. It is a movie that I still, even with its flaws, and there are a lot of flaws in this movie, and even looking at it as a product of its time and going, eh, you know, it doesn't really hold up in these areas, I still enjoy it as a movie. And I think the reason, the reasons maybe that I enjoy it as a movie is A, I, it just hit me at the right time at life. Mm -hmm. And so I've got that kind of attachment to it. I don't know. Right, it's relatable. But B, for some of the stuff that we talked about, maybe as negatives, I, are kind of positives for me sometimes. So I like the over the topness of it. Mm -hmm. I I like the fact that it is not apologetic for what it is. It's nuts and it's going to be nuts. But and you hated the fifth element. I did, but not because it was nuts. I hated the fifth element because of Chris Tucker screaming all the damn time in the movie. <gasps> I agree. That's a lot. Ruby yeah. Rudd. Okay, no. fine. Um, it's not super it was just a little Josh. much. It was okay. just a little much. Right. I would actually go with this as a rave, but with an asterisk. Mm -hmm. And the asterisk is, it is a rave when you see it your first time. It has a very strong possibility of going downhill the second time because the things that made it a rave the first time around, the element of surprise in a mm -hmm. lot of things, the fact that you have never potentially, when you saw this for the first time, if it was in the 90s, that you'd never seen anything like this. You know, there's a lot of uniqueness factor to it for that time. Some of the performances in it, like 
like we mentioned, are not great. And some of the time travel stuff doesn't make sense. But at the end of the day, if I've got to judge it and say, is it a movie that I enjoy that I would go back to? Yeah, I've seen it a bunch of times. Mm. And so that's kind of how I judge whether it's a Well, yeah, when you rental. said you've seen it 10 times, I thought, no, I would not watch this no. a third time. Like, And so that means it just hits for you better. Yeah. I don't know than, why. Yeah. It's just well, yeah. a sweet spot for you, yeah. I mean, which is fine. This is one of my more tolerable Terry Gilliam movies, in my opinion. And like, there are some of his movies I just feel the way Charlotte does about this one. Like, I hate Baron von Munchausen. With I've never seen Baron I von Munchausen. I tried it, and again, oh. that was another one. One of my boyfriends it's tried to just get me to watch. Too much for Don't me. care. I will add that there's several Terry Gilliam movies that I would put high on my list of favorite. Like, for example, you know, the Monty Python stuff, yeah. Meaning of Life, I can watch every day. Holy Grail, of course. Yeah. But even like Fisher King is a surprisingly moving, wistful, melancholic film that I've seen maybe four or five times. Much more grounded in terms of its humanity, too. Exactly. I hold him in high regard still as a director, but gosh, I just can't stand this film now. I can understand how this film would be completely irritating to some people. Like, I really do. I understand that. I can understand how this film would be unwatchable to others just for a lot of the reasons that we've named. And sorry, I was just just double checking, but like Life of Brian was Terry Jones. Not Terry Gilliam. True, but he was one of the writers on it. Well, yeah, but they were all. It was that was a Python. Like they all wrote that. And then um, Holy Grail was Jones and Gilliam together. So I feel like without that tempering, silly sensibility of Jones, you just get. I think that's for me part of what's surprising about the Terry Gilliam movies is that he's known best for being from a comedy troupe, and there's very little comedy in these. And you know, Monty Python is some of my favorite comedy, and these have not a shred of comedy in them. Not quite, though. Think of Brad Pitt's performance. I mean, there's uh, comedy. It's not comedy like ha-ha comedy. It was comedic. It's comedic, correct. Some of the wordplay and some of the delivery Mm -hmm. and the -the over-the-topness, like all of that would fall into a sort of, it's almost like watching pantomime and going, that's not theater or whatever, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it kind of is. But it wasn't silly. And part of like what appeals about Terry Gilliam's visual style in terms of a Python film is that sort of wacky, like the Dutch angle shows that something is off kilter, which when you're doing something silly is less subversive than something dark where you're doing this juxtaposition between here's this crazy angle and this crazy thing that's happening. Whoa. Like it just hits completely differently. And part of, you know, his stuff was always very satirical. And when you take the humor out of satire, it becomes cynicism, I yes. think. And then that can be very grating if it gets too heavy. Let's go. I'm done. <laughs> That's it. We've gone through We've all, been here for 12 all 12 of these monkeys and we're, we we're to, done with it. We have to end I'm going to start killing monkeys. I've got an up note for the season here. Yeah, I think we average that out. Honestly, I, I think it averages out somewhere in the, eh, you know, area Your of results things. may vary. Your yeah. results may vary. If you are a film nerd, film school, video store guy in the 90s, you might have more of an affection for this than you might otherwise. What do we think Alan would say? I think Alan would say... He'd say rent it. I think he'd say rent it with an asterisk and say that he liked it, but it has problems. That would be my guess from what he was saying earlier. In fact, he wrote down here for me to read this quote. It says, this movie would have gotten five stars if it had had five times the amount of ass brushing. (laughs) 
Let's be done. Let's call this one done. Let's wrap it up. Enormous thanks for coming and spending all of this time with me here and recording both this season and last season. Um, Thank you, Fabian, for waking up while it was still dark and getting on the Zooms with us. I appreciate that. Thank you to Alan for sticking around for part of this. And I appreciate you too, Alan. And love you, Alan. Don't shut up, Alan. Never shut (laughs) up, I never meant it. And we'll end this off as we always do with uh, just checking in with everybody, telling the people what they need to know. Where can they find you? What's the haps? And we'll start with Nick. Uh, You can find me nowhere. And uh, don't look for me because I'm (laughs) invisible. (laughs) Social media is a curse and a blight upon our world and no one should be on it. That said, uh, you could probably look at our company Instagram if you want to see us making some TV commercials or videos or whatever. Junction Road picks. And uh, Charlotte? I'm on Venmo as Cavaticat. C-A-V-A-T-I-C-A-T. Only (laughs) multiples of 20 are allowed. I'm on TikTok as Cavatica, C-A-V-A-T-I-C-A. And sometimes I make audiobooks, but I don't have any gigs right now. That's all I got going on. So go watch my videos and tell me I'm cute. That's what I got. <laughs> you know, you should start a podcast. I hear there's a lot of money in that. Yeah. I am on a delightful podcast called The Unpredicted Party, which is on both YouTube and your favorite podcast provider. It is DM'd by my friend Don Marshall. The premise is what would happen if the fellowship did try to take the Eagles to Mordor. Ooh. And uh, the wow. answer is nothing good. <laughs> Fair. Fabian. Well, I do have some social. My Instagram account is Fabian Marquez, at Fabian Marquez, but I'm a lurker, an unrepentant lurker. I haven't posted in a while for many of the reasons Nick stated. (laughs) (laughs) But if you want to get in touch with me or troll uh, my dozens of past posts, there's a couple (laughs) pictures on there. And for our our good friend Alan Mall, we will mention again that his new play, The Weight of Everything We Know, is out there. Which was awesome, by the way. So good. We made the play out there in the world. Delightful. is a very, very talented writer, and it was awesome to see his stuff be performed. They did a great job with it, and he rules. And you can find him on the socials at MahlerBaller, M-A-U-L-E-R, Baller. And that's it, guys. Good night. I'm going to go to sleep for 100 years. See ya! (laughs) This has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, Roundtable of Fabian Marquez, Charlotte Moore Lambert, Alan Mall, and Nick Heim. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. I mean, the timing doesn't get any better than a season finale to subscribe to Subgenre on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or nearly any other podcast platform in timelines both known and yet to be discovered. There you'll find our big episodes, our little episodes, some bonus content, and more. Do we need more listeners? You bet we do. So tell 12 of the monkeys you know about our show. Then leave your five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's massive in helping other listeners find us, just like you did. Got the urge to financially support a podcast? You'll find the link to do it at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta thing, and that other thing. We're at subgenrepod. Time twisters are now a thing of the past. What may come next? Will anything come next? That good world is up to you. Give it a think and let us know. And as always, in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, 
Be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki.